Hello, and welcome to another episode of Spirit of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Collins. So over the next three episodes, I'm actually going to be sharing with you a series that I am doing at Elkhorn Baptist Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. They have been so kind and so gracious and have invited me to speak to them concerning God's prophetic calendar. So tonight, I'm going to be sharing with you the first session which is just titled God's Prophetic Calendar. Uh, We start out, obviously, in Leviticus 23, and we don't make it past the second verse. We read the first two verses and pretty much camp out there. (laughs) So we will cover that. We will cover the Sabbath and an overview of God's holy days and feast days who they are for? Are they only for the Jews? Do they even apply to me? And why or why not? And is that something that should even be on my radar? So we talk about the significance and what they mean to us and who they're for today. So stay tuned to hear about the overview of God's prophetic calendar tonight. And then next week's episode will be the Spring Feast. And then followed up by the third episode in the installment is going to be the fall feast. So I cannot wait to share this with you. So without further ado, here's the first segment. Good morning. My name is Melissa Collins. And first of all, I want to thank y'all so very much for the opportunity to be here with you guys and fellowship this month. I'm so excited to talk about our Father at any chance that I get, but especially during this time of year. So I also want to take a quick second and just give some honor to Ginger. You guys are so blessed to have her as a teacher here within your congregation. She is truly remarkable. And I know she's already been sharing quite a lot about this topic. So I want to apologize in advance if some of this may be a repeat. But I found that our Bibles actually repeat things quite often. So I suppose it's okay if I do too. But I thought I would start out and cover God's prophetic calendar as an overview today. And then next week, we will recap and do the spring feast. And then we will cover the fall feast on the 25th, since that night starts the actual first holy day of the fall season. Does that sound good? Awesome. So I have a lot to cover. So let's just go ahead and jump right in by talking about calendars. So we all have a calendar, a planner, an appointment book, and most of those things we keep right here on our phones. But our spouses also have their own calendars and we have to make those work together, right? 
So we even have other calendars with different start and end times as well that even overlap those. So for example, we have our calendar that runs January, December, the Gregorian calendar, but our school calendars start in August and run through May generally. We've got physical calendars that may start in April or January that at our work, but they can start and end at different times. And you know, the list just goes on and on for the different calendars that we accommodate in our lives. But I'll never forget when I first realized that God has his own calendar too. But he even has standing appointments with us on his calendar. And it was just this dreadful. It was just this absolutely dreadful feeling that I had in the pit of my stomach when I realized that God had appointments with me and I was standing him up. Do you know what it feels like to have left God waiting to know that you have stood up God, the creator? It was just a completely yucky feeling. But it absolutely changed my life from that point forward. Scripture tells us that everything in the Bible points to Jesus, Yeshua, our Messiah. And just a little caveat here, when you hear me say Yeshua, that's the Hebrew pronunciation of his name. So I just wanted to take a moment and explain that, that I, I have a habit of using them interchangeably, just the same as I get called, you know, mom and Melissa and Mel, all the same person. I just go by different things, Yeshua and Jesus our Messiah in the same context. So, but what I was saying is let's read, actually, let's go read Romans chapter 10, verse four. I want to point out uh, a Greek word here. It says for Christ is, and the Greek word right here is, and I'm probably going to butcher it, telos of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That Greek word there means the point aimed at or the goal. So it's telling us that Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So just as a telescope points us to the stars, the instructions in our Old Testament were given to us so that we would be pointed to Him. The picture that I normally use in this presentation is a picture of an archer. And she's looking through her scope and she's aimed downfield at her target. And I just found this picture to be the perfect represent, representation of what the scriptures are trying to tell us. Jesus is our target. He is the goal. That's what we are aiming for, to be with him, to be like him. Our eyes should be fixed and focused on him, just as this girl looking through her scope. That's what we should be looking out toward. We should be looking toward him. and We should be looking forward to him. 
In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, it says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Well, to be honest, it didn't surprise me that the prophecy would be fulfilled. But what about fulfilling the law of Moses? He goes on to say in John 5, 46, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. The law of Moses, the book of the Torah, it tells us about these special days in God's calendar. Days where he wants to meet with us. You can find all of these feasts, they're mentioned in Leviticus 23 altogether, but they're also mentioned in hundreds of other places in your Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament. So let's, let's go to the most logical place to start. Let's start in the beginning. Before telling us about the lights and the heaven that Yahweh created on the fourth day, the book of Genesis tells us, first why he created them in genesis 1:14 god said let there be lots in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years so we see there that he outlines three very specific reasons why He created the sun and the moon and the stars. The first one being to divide the day from the night. The second one for signs and for seasons. And the third reason being for days and for years. So let's dive in a little deeper and let's look at the first reason. The very next verse in Genesis 1-5 says, God called the light day. And the darkness he called not, and the evening and the morning was the first day. So that's why you see Jewish and Messianic and Christians who keep these feast days, they begin their celebrations and observances at sundown and then they end at sundown. For this very reason, it says, Evening and darkness came first, and then the light. So evening and then morning equals the first day. So the second reason that's mentioned was for signs and for seasons. And so we see here the word there for sign is the Hebrew term ot. And that Strong's H226, it's for a sign or a signal, a distinguishing mark, a miraculous sign, omen, warning, ensign, or proof. And so I'm sure we're all at least somewhat familiar with the blood moons and the tetrads and the scriptures concerning the moon turning to blood and the the sun turning dark before the great and powerful day of the Lord. So we understand that there are signs and omens and warnings within the sun, moon, and stars. But 
again, related to the signs and seasons, it says that there's a distinguishing mark. So we're going to dive a little deeper into one possibility of what that may be signaling. And then the word there for seasons, you know, growing up in elementary school, you learn that seasons are merely the winter, spring, summer, and fall. And I just always put that association there with science and the sun and the moon with the weather and the seasons. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized how much gets lost in translation. The word there in Genesis for seasons is uh, Strong's H4150 and it's moed or moedim in plural. And it's for the appointments, sacred seasons or set feast. So we're really going to spend some time there over the next few minutes and explore that even more. So let's take a look at Leviticus 23. So that is a great place to see all of God's holy days or appointments with us outlined in within one chapter. So let's grab our Bibles and let's go to Leviticus 23. So in my Bible, the heading of this chapter is called the Appointed Festivals. And it starts out, it says, the Lord said to Moses, and I'm going to stop right there for just a second. And I know I've probably already said Yahweh, but just in case you're not familiar with that term, anytime you see those four capital letters written out in your Bible, that's where the translators have taken the liberty to change what the original scripture said. Originally, when you see that, the, the letters that were there were, um, it was the tetragrammation of God's proper name, the yod Hey vav Hey. those four Hebrew letters, again, that spells out God's proper name. The way I pronounce the name, and I'm not saying that it's that it's the correct way, but my way of that pronunciation, and, and a common one, is Yahweh. You may also hear Yahuwah or Yehovah, uh, Jehovah. So a lot of different ways to pronounce that. Um, so if you hear me say Yahweh, that's that's why I use that interchangeably. Uh, some will say Hashem. Some will say Lord or God. You may hear me say any of those throughout this presentation. So I just wanted to take a moment and explain that real quick. So back to the scripture. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals. The appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. So he makes it super clear right off the bat because he says it twice. These appointments, these holy days and festivals, they belong to him. They do not belong to man. They do not belong to any group of people. They don't belong to the Jews, even though that's what we, we're guilty of typically calling them the Jewish feasts, the Jewish festivals, merely because that's the majority of the people that you see still celebrating them today. Um, you know, it's just... 
Unfortunately, that's just the the habit, I guess, of our culture. We just take the thing that's most common and most familiar, and we we name everything by that name. Like every soda pop in Kentucky is a Coke. <laughs> so every tissue is a Kleenex. So in the same way, the Jewish people are most known for observing these festivals. So we have a bad habit of labeling them as Jewish, when in fact they they're very specifically belong to the Lord our God. So looking forward uh, throughout um, chapter 23, you can see there are different uh, headings, at least in my Bible, that outline the feast and the holy days. The very first one mentioned starting in verse 3 is the weekly Sabbath. Then starting in verse 4, we have the Passover or in Hebrew Pesach and the festival of unleavened bread. Starting in verse 9, the Feast of First Fruits, or Yom Habikarim. Then the Festival of Weeks, which is where we count down to the Feast of, you may know as Pentecost or Shavuot in Hebrew. Then in starting in verse 23, the Festival of Trumpets, or Yom Teruah, uh, which is the head of the new year. And starting in verse 26, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And then in verse 33, throughout the rest of the chapter, is the Festival of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. So, again, these are listed in hundreds of places throughout your Bible, mentioned in the Old and the New Testaments. But verse, or chapter rather, 23 in Leviticus is where you can find all of them mentioned together. These are all about Yeshua and these all point toward Yeshua. So I know I mentioned this earlier, we're, we typically call these the Jews, but let's talk about if these are only for the Jews or if these are for us too. So let's go back to, let's go somewhere where I think we can all agree to where were the commandments given? And I'm sure we all realize there were instructions prior to Mount Sinai. But again, I think we can all agree that at Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to receive the, the sapphire tablets written by the hand of God, that's where officially the commandments were given, which just so happened to be the Feast of Pentecost. But I digress. So again, let's we're at the base of Mount Sinai. Let's talk about who was there. So let's go read Exodus chapter 12 and let's look for verses, let's see, 37 through 42. So Exodus chapter 12, 37 begins. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. Hmm, I think we just heard that word, didn't we? It says there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them. So right off the bat, we see we've got the Israelites and many other people. Also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. This is the dough of the Israelites that they had brought from Egypt. They baked loaves of unleavened bread. Remember that. 
The dough was without yeast because they had driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time that the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. So we saw at the very beginning of those verses that we just read that there's a mixed multitude there. It was not just the blood-born Israelites. There were many other people, not just the original 12 tribes. And, you know, again, a lot of people say, well, that was that was just the Jewish people. No, it was not just the tribe of Judah. It were it, All 12 tribes were there. If you recall how Joseph ended up in Egypt, uh, you, you know, 30,000 cliff notes view is his brother sold him into slavery and he was taken to Egypt. He was put in prison there. Long story short, he ends up I think second in command in Egypt and there was a famine and Jacob and his brothers ended up in Egypt and Jacob or Joseph rather was able to save Jacob and his brothers by being able to provide food and refuge for them in Egypt to escape the famine. So that's how that is the origin of how all of 12 tribes had lineage and descendants there in the Egypt Exodus story. So we know it wasn't just Judah. It was Dan and Reuben and all Simeon and all of the tribes there uh, in this, at least their lineage at the base of Mount Sinai. So again, um, we know the Levitical tribes were there. We know that after Mount Sinai, they start putting these things in place. So if these were only for that one tribe of Judah, it really wouldn't make sense for, let's say, the Levitical priesthood for the tribe of the Levites to have their special roles and responsibilities that they had to attend to. What if they were to say, oh, that's these laws are only for the Jews? Well, as their priesthood, that wouldn't make any sense at all. How silly would that be if they were to be like, just as the Christians 3,000 years from now, this is only for the Jews. Well, that would just be silly. No, it was for all 12 tribes and those people who believed in God and followed them. Uh, You know, it's mentioned throughout the scriptures about the other people who left Egypt with the blood-born Israelites. They saw the power of God Yahweh. They saw the plagues. They saw that he was stronger than the gods that they had thought that they had been worshiping. They saw the favor that the Israelites had with God and they knew they wanted to be a part of that. So they literally followed him. They literally followed the pillars of smoke and of fire and they followed God out of Egypt. And so it is today. If you are a follower of God, then these instructions are for you as well. Numbers 15, 15 says, One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly. That word there is kahal, that what we know is church. There's one ordinance for all. For the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever. 
throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. It's very clear that there's no distinction between the strangers who want to be joined to the Lord and to follow the Lord versus those who are blood born into the tribes of Israel. So I think it's clear we can see here that these strangers, these Gentiles, they're being, can we say, grafted in to Israel. Jeremiah eleven sixteen. we know that the olive tree is Israel. And Ephesians 2, 12, Israel is the church. So I think it's very easy, at least for me, or maybe at least to see where I'm coming from, where I believe in my hardest of hearts, I do believe that these instructions do apply still today to us, to all believers and followers of God. But do they apply now? So I guess to figure out if to me, to figure out if they apply now, I need to know how long is forever. So let's go read 2 Chronicles, starting in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Behold, I build a house to the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to Him and to burn before Him sweet incense, and for the continual showbread, for the burnt offerings morning and evening, on the Sabbaths and on the new moons, And on the solemn feast of the Lord our God, this is an ordinance forever to Israel. So here again, we see that we've established that Israel, that this was given an ordinance forever to Israel. We've read and we believe that the children of Israel is the church. It is all 12 tribes plus the people who join themselves and follow God. We know that at the base of Mount Sinai, it was the mixed multitude, the 12 tribes and the people that joined. So we've established, because we are followers of God, that this does apply to us. And it says, again here, forever. So does forever stop at Jesus' first coming? I think in order to say that forever stopped, we would have to question God's covenant with a rainbow. Again, set back in the beginning, God set a promise and put his sign and mark in the sky of the rainbow as a sign that his covenant promise was forever, that he would never destroy the earth again by flood. But if we think that forever can be a temporary thing, that forever can start and stop, then we would have to question ourselves on whether or not God could still flood the earth today. And we know that's silly. We know and in the deepest part of our hearts that God is not going to flood the earth. He will not destroy it by flood again. And we know that because he made that promise forever and we know God changes not. So we know we can take confidence and rest in the fact. But if we know that forever applies to the covenant of the rainbow doesn't forever apply here as well. So we see in the millennial reign, let's go read Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. It says, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all of the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, 
and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all of the families of the earth into Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So if these feasts are still being celebrated, even after the return of Jesus, then I propose that forever literally means forever. But even if you do disagree with me, since we know we have the biblical proof text here that we are going to be celebrating these feasts in the future, what would it hurt to begin practicing these things now? So let's also talk about why. So let's think about why we, you and I, we celebrate our traditional holidays like Thanksgiving and birthdays, anniversaries. When we are celebrating and observing these, we're doing it for a myriad of reasons. One being to spend time with family. We're also honoring someone or celebrating a person or celebrating or memorializing an event like an anniversary. We do it to fellowship with our families. We do it to create memories together and express our love toward one another. As humans, if these are the reasons that we celebrate our holidays together, then how much more so does God want to spend his holy days with us? These holy days are designed for all of those same reasons. It's a family get-together where God's people can be in unity, in community. The value in just those things, it's so deep, but it goes so much deeper than that. The repetition of these feasts, these moedim, they create this cyclical rhythm, this pattern. You know, just in our everyday physical lives, we, we have the pattern, the cyclicalness of the seconds, minutes, hours, the days, months, and years, even our solar system. We have all of these cyclical patterns throughout our lives. And these create habits, they create unity, and they create walking in rhythm. When God's people began to keep the Sabbath, to keep the Passover, to keep these holy days, and we begin doing this habitually in these cyclical patterns, I want you to think about the power in that. Think about the walls of Jericho, how God's people walking in rhythm, encircling and encamping the walls of Jericho seven times before the walls come crumbling down at the shout of a trumpet. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Can you read between those lines and see the significance of observing these holidays and the prophetic shadows that are embedded inside of them? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been a part of or been to a wedding rehearsal? So wedding rehearsal, it's not the real thing, right? And, and sometimes it's not even in the real actual place, but it's about preparation. It's 
practice. This is where you have the freedom to mess up, to not get it exactly right. But by going through those motions, by creating that habit, by getting in this rhythm, you find a familiarity, you find a comfort in it. That way on the real day, you're prepared and it can be flawless and it can be done right. When you're in the real place at the real time, But the wedding rehearsal, it's practice. It's serious preparation. And the Bible is no different. The entire Bible is a love story. It's about a people and a land and a covenant or a marriage. And just as we take our own wedding rehearsal, our own marriage and covenant seriously, we need to take our wedding rehearsals and our covenant with God serious as well. Speaking of preparation, you know, we have the wedding rehearsals. We prepare for our own weddings. We prepare for having babies. We prepare for retirement and trips, even death when it's possible. We even prepare to come here today. But are we truly prepared for the single most important event in life history? Just want to ask yourself if you knew that Yeshua was coming back next week, next month, next year, would would something change within your walk? Are we really prepared or would we have to change something? So let's let's talk about the common Hebrew words for prepare. I'm going to cover four. Uh, and I apologize that, you know, I have the southern twang. I'm going to butcher the Hebrew, I'm sure. Um, but again, so much gets lost in translation to our English language. For the words for prepare, let's start with uh, a shaw. It's Strong's 2633. To make, produce is the first couple of words. And okay, that makes sense. When we think of preparing, Dinner. We're going to take ingredients and we're going to take a flour and egg and whatnot and we're going to prepare a cake. So that makes sense to make, produce. But it goes on that it's also observe, to celebrate, to bring about, to put in order, to ordain, to press or squeeze. So by celebrating these feasts, these moedim, We are observing, we are preparing, we are celebrating, we are putting things in order to bring about the end times. The second one is kadosh, which we know is holy. Kadosh means, again, it can be translated as prepare, but to be made holy, to be set apart, to consecrate, to dedicate, or observe that which is holy. So again, by celebrating and observing the Sabbath and the feast, we are being consecrated. We are being set apart. Jeremiah 51, 28 is an example of this where the word there, the very first word is kadosh against her. Prepare against her the nations with the king of the Medes and the captains thereof and the rulers thereof and all the land of his dominion. The third one is kun to be firm or established, to be set up, 
to be fixed, to be firmly established. I think they're trying to tell us it's firmly established. So by observing these weekly and annual feasts repetitively year after year, we are being firmly established. We are being set up. We are being fixed. We are preparing ourselves to be firm and to be steadfast and comfortable and prepared when the real events come. Let's jump over and let's read Matthew 3. Let's start in verse 1 and read through verse 3. It says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So let's compare to the verse it was referring to, to the prophecy to John. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, A voice of one calling, Prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. The word there for prepare is panah. It literally means to turn toward or away from, to turn and do, to turn around. Which, if you're familiar with the Hebrew term teshuva, repentance, that's exactly the same definition, to turn toward God, to turn away from the ways of the world, to turn away from sin, to turn around, to go back to the roots of our faith, to go back to the ways of God. Repentance is exactly what John was preaching. Repent and return. Prepare ye the way. And this is exactly how we prepare for end times. So timing is everything. These are rehearsals. This is a wedding rehearsal that points to when our bridegroom would actually come, both his first coming and his second coming, because Yeshua died on Passover. He laid flat in the grave during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when every Jew was eating flatbread and removing leaven, which is representative of sin from their house. He rose at exactly the same moment that the high priest was waving the barley offering of the Feast of First Fruits, as Yeshua was the first fruits of the dead, of the resurrected. And then there was the Holy Spirit that came down on Shavuot, the Feast of Pentecost, which just so happened to be the same day, 1,200 years earlier, when all of Israel received the Torah on Mount Sinai. And I do not think any of that is a coincidence. Yahweh is fulfilling his prophetic calendar based on his prophetic word. Everything exactly at the precise moment. Timing is everything. If we learn his calendar, we can learn about him. We learn about his ways and we can learn about what's to come. If we ignore his calendar and we just follow the traditions of men, we are just going to be left in the darkness and be left to guess. 
So back into Leviticus 23, the very first scripture that's mentioned here, the very first holy day is the weekly Sabbath. This is the first cyclical pattern that we see every seven days. It was set into motion and established at creation. And it's just, it's embedded all throughout the Hebrew roots of our scriptures. So let's read, um, let's go read Exodus 20 and let's read verses 8 through 11. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or female servants nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your town. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that are in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know, this is at Mount Sinai. This is a fourth commandment, and he's telling us to remember. This is the only commandment that I recall at the giving of the commandments at Mount Sinai, where he specifically says, hey, remember this one. You know, Brad Scott always said, God is smarter than we are. Did he know? He knew. I believe that this is the one that we were going to forget. This is the one that we were going to change. Out of all of the Ten Commandments, this is the one that we're, eh, we're going to kind of gloss over. But God specifically told us, this is what you need to remember. So some serious questions here, um, just food for thought. Would you agree with me that everything was made perfect at the beginning of time before sin? In the garden, everything was good. It was very good. And that it was God's intention, God's will, that sin wouldn't be in the world and that everything would have remained perfect had things remained the same in the garden. But it was the sin in the garden that changed everything, right? And at some point, Jesus is going to come back in the future and he's going to restore everything. And we're going to go back to that original state of perfection without sin. So isn't it logical to assume that because the seventh day Sabbath that was established at creation, that was enforced, intact in the garden, because the Sabbath was observed there, Is it not fair to assume that when things are reset back to that original perfect state that the Sabbath is still going to be an effect and that it never should have been changed? Right? It's just food for thought. So let's read Isaiah 66, starting in 22. It says, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, So will your name and descendants endure. 23. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come bow down before me, says the Lord. Here we read that all flesh is worshiping him on his Sabbath in the millennial reign. 
we know God doesn't change. So if he established this law at creation, he tells us that it is forever and tells us it's still in effect at the end. Don't you think it should still apply today? Isaiah 56 says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without profane in it and who hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So even here, he specifically addresses that his servants are These are foreigners who keep the Sabbath without profaning it. So he specifically addresses even the foreigners are keeping the Sabbath. And we've already read earlier in Exodus 12, 49, how it is one law for those born as children of Israel and the foreigners who join themselves with them. It's one law for all. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. It is one law, one ordinance forever. So we've talked about the holy days. We've talked about the Moedim. We've talked about the seasons, but we haven't talked about the signs and the seasons yet. So we've covered the seasons. So let's talk about those signs now. Um, Exodus 31 verses 16 through 7 says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. There's a lot in that verse. Again, keep the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath. For how long? Throughout their generations. A perpetual covenant forever. But it says very specifically that it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. So just as my wedding band is a sign to my husband and is a sign to the world that I am in covenant with him. I follow him. I belong to him. We have a covenant together The Sabbath is the mark, it is the sign, it is the wedding band between ourselves and God. If we are His, if we're in covenant with Him, the Sabbath is a sign of that. Exodus 13, 9, it says, And it shall be a sign for you on your hand, and a reminder on your forehead, that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For with a mighty hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt, Therefore, you shall keep this statute at the appointed time, year after year. Again, we see the sign, our wedding band, the sign on our hand that is the marker of our covenant with the Lord. In this context is Passover. So here we have two proof texts that keeping these holy days, these Moedim, These are signs. These are marks of our covenant with Yahweh. And it's just 
Interesting to note here, again, this is just food for thought. Let's take a look at the sign of God. Let's look at God's mark just a little deeper. Revelation 14.1 It's talking about the 144,000. And it explains that they have, they've been marked, they've been sealed with the name of Jesus or the name of God written on their forehead. Well, we, we just read the mark of God is on their forehead, a sign on their hand. And here we have God sealing the 144,000 again with a mark on their forehead. So let's read Revelation 13 15 about the mark of the beast the beast also has his own sign or mark that is written on the forehead or the right hand and his mark is also the name or the number but the name of the beast is written again on the forehead or the right hand just as the name of god or jesus is written on the forehead of forehead of his is that not an eerie coincidence very similar. So Exodus 31, 16 through 17, we read that keeping the Sabbath is a mark of God. It's a sign of our covenant. Revelation 13, 16, we see that if you have the mark of the beast, you cannot buy or sell. Again, keeping Sabbath, we don't buy or sell on the seventh day causing someone to work eerie coincidence how the mark of the beast is associated with buying and selling exodus 13 9 we read that keeping passover is a mark of god on your forehead or your hand and we know that Passover is one of the appointed times. It's a moed. It's a season of God. And we read in Daniel 7.25 how the beast changes the time and season. Revelation 14.12, we see the 144,000 who are sealed keeps the commandments and they have the testimony of Yeshua. One of those commandments being having a rest on the Sabbath. And we see in Revelation 11 that there is no rest for those with the mark of the beast. So again, that's just four eerie coincidences that God's sign or mark is the antithesis of the beast sign or mark. They're completely opposite, yet eerily similar with having names and relations to bond and selling and resting as a mark on your forehead and your hand. Again, food for thought. Just a possibility there. So let's talk about the Sabbath and the millennial reign. There are Jewish teachings about the 6,000 years of man that we read about in Genesis 6-3 and the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ and how that is an echo of the six days of creation and the one-day Sabbath rest. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and in Psalms 90, verse 4, we read how a thousand years with man is a day in the Lord. And a day with the Lord is as a thousand years of man. So we can definitely see that correlation, how 
the Sabbath is prophetic illustration of the days of mankind. And then finally, as an overview, I could spend, I could probably spend another 45 minutes just talking about how when Jesus came, how he fulfilled on his first time the four spring feasts where he died on Passover as the lamb that was slain for our sins, how he went into the tomb on unleavened bread he raises the first fruits of the resurrected on first fruits and how after he ascended he sent back and gave the gift of his spirit on pentecost exactly 1200 years from the moment that the law the torah was given on pentecost at mount sinai it was a beautiful fulfillment and it's only logical to believe that his second coming will be a fulfillment of the last three when he returns at the, sh- at the shout of a trumpet on the Feast of Trumpets, when he judges the earth on the Day of Atonement, and we rejoice with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he tabernacles with us during the Feast of Tabernacles. So I hope this just wets your whistle a little bit for the next two sessions and this series and we dive deeper into more about the wedding more about the parallels and go further in depth about all the details of fulfillment in the spring and then fall feast the spring feasts that have already been fulfilled and the prophecy of the fall feast which are still yet to come so a lot of exciting content coming i can't wait to share it with you and i will stick around today for more questions at the end again i just want to thank you guys for the opportunity for me to be here with you today and share the things that i'm passionate about that i read about in our father's word so again thank you all god bless you all and we will talk again after service